Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Hey, Rob, what's up? Well, it feels great to be back in the office, honestly. Oh, I, feel, I feel so refreshed, yeah. Yeah, it's nice. That little retreat we were on, it was nice to get into the nature, you know, do some yoga, eat some, do some clean living, the cleanse. That was nice. I feel really refreshed. Yeah. It's good. Everyone needs that. Yeah, I feel rejuvenated. I feel, um, I yeah, I, I just, I feel as though, you know, things are... Back to normal. I feel like we had a rough week. Uh, you know, getting dragged online is never fun. But uh, yeah, I wasn't know, things... ex- when we did that ad for the CIA. I was not expecting the reaction to go like that. I was like really waiting for. You know, the ad came out. Mm-hmm. I was really excited. I was waiting for everyone to talk about how great it is and how woke the CIA is now and inclusive mm-hmm. and everything. Really, was not expecting the the vitriol that we saw. So it's I mm-hmm. I needed to take some time off after that. Yeah, that was really frustrating. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty maddening. I don't know. I didn't want to mention this when we were when we were away, but cuz I thought it was going to be a really great team building exercise to bring the interns with us uh, on this retreat. It seemed like they weren't happy about uh the fact that we asked them to pay for their own rooms, which seems just really like entitled to me. I didn't I didn't yeah. want to mention this to you at the time, but what's the what is that all about? I don't get that. I don't know. I had to put in my time when I was an intern. I mean, granted, I never had to do that. But like, I think just the evolving way we work and the way society, you know, it's just, you just you just got to put in your time, pay your dues. It's just, I think it's just, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's just entitled kids. Yeah. And I mean, we're bringing you to this, this wonderful retreat. You have mm-hmm. the opportunity to like pick our brains, network. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge opportunity. So I don't really understand the... The entitlement yeah. that comes along with, you know, be, getting upset about that just because we had to, they had to, you know, shell out a little bit for the, these rooms. But, you know, yeah, that's it. And that's the airfare. And yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the food, food was know. also not included as well. Yeah. But again, it's the Zoomer generation. I guess it's just yeah. one of those things you have to accept. I just um, can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's strange. But, yeah. What can you do? What can you do? <sighs> anyway, so uh, it's, again, it's, it's nice to be back here in the office. I'm just scanning the headlines looking at what's been going on uh i wasn't really checking my phone too much over the last week is there anything like if you has anything popped up to you that you want to like talk about or anything you want to get into going on kind of a slow week yeah not a lot going on it feels like nothing yeah yeah just nothing at all it's just one of those times when it's like well you know imagine if if trump was still in there he'd be like tweeting I know. You're saying all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice that he's not. So I guess yes, there's just absolutely go. nothing going on to talk about. No, nothing of import, and uh, it's kind of a boring, boring time. Yeah. But I guess you know it's whatever. Even though even though there's nothing at all going on in the in the U.S. or elsewhere that we could weigh in on, I think it's just good to get back at the office, get back to work. So let's do it. Let's go. Sometimes when we're doing these, I'm just like, I'm, I sound so stupid. Like the things that are coming my, my, out of my mouth right now. It hurts. Are just so it ridiculous. <laughs> and yeah. This is the only podcast though. Have you, have you realized this? There's a lot of podcasts out there. This is the only one that has an podcast. ongoing, an ongoing serialized radio play about two absolute dipshits uh, going, going about their professional lives. Wait, what's wrong with them? I think there's no, cool. <laughs> um, you don't think so? Yeah, well, mm. <laughs> I think one of them is is pretty cool, but I'm cool. I'm the cool. One. Mm. 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> welcome back to uh, the Insurgents. Uh, you got Rob Rousseau here. Hey, Rob. Along with Jordan. Welcome to the show. Yeah. It's been a long time. Glad you're here. Yeah. How are you feeling? You were you were under the weather <laughs> last week. Uh, to say the least, I had fucking pneumonia, man. Yeah, pneumonia. Jeez. <laughs> uh, that's like a baby disease. What is this? I'm going to get scarlet fever next, but like a baby and Mumps. old people disease. Yeah. yeah I don't know, that's I don't know what that is. Get. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another weird one. But yeah, so I, I was feeling... I had a cold, and I was thinking, like, okay, it's not that big of a deal. It's just it's just a cold, right? Um, and that week progressed. I still had it, still had it. And that Friday, I also had my vaccine scheduled. And it's like, oh, fuck, I hope I don't have COVID. Because it was like kind of a cough, kind of a sneeze. So I go to get my vaccine, and I'm feeling all right. The next day, it like just it is just a descent into... Uh, just the worst I felt in a very long time. I couldn't breathe without coughing, and uh, it ended up yeah, it ended up being pneumonia, and took like a two and a half weeks to get over, and it was it was fucking terrible. You're working too hard, man. Working, you're burning the candle at both ends. Uh yeah, I'm trying to live moss. <laughs> well, you know, we do support the live moss lifestyle here, so I, can, I guess I can't argue with that. Um. I am happy to hear you're feeling better, though. That's good. Yeah, so it is, uh, it's a pleasure to be back. We have uh, Nashua Khan coming on the uh, the show this week. Uh, she's the host of the podcast, Habibti Please. Uh, she's a friend. She's actually a colleague of mine in the Harbinger Media Network, which is like a cool Canadian thing that you're not, you're not part of. Um, I don't care. I don't care <laughs> about that. I didn't even want to be invited into the, I don't into the Harbinger Media go. Network. I don't want to go. Uh, Nash was great um, and is coming on to talk about the ongoing uh, crisis in Israel-Palestine. We didn't really get into the origins of this specific conflict and the way this has flared up over the last couple of weeks, um, starting with these kind of forced evictions in the, in the Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which has spiraled into this kind of global protest movement in Palestinian solidarity. You have, you know, um, some some brutal colonialist violence. You have the IDF is, is commencing this uh, really horrific bombing campaign uh against the the citizens of of gaza as a result of the the spiral of uh, of violence that's kind of has been set off here nash was it was really great to get her uh get her to weigh in on this you know it was a really good conversation about about all this stuff it's a it's tricky subject matter but i think it's uh it's it's crucial that we have these conversations and it's this was this one was a really good one yeah, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation with her, and I think it's it's a tough subject matter, emotional week for everybody. But I think this helped cut through some of that and just kind of get to the core of it. Yeah, I, I hope so. I think I, before before she comes on, I think the one thing that I wanted to mention we touched on this a little bit during our conversation with with Nashua, but I think it's just worth pointing out that I think. You know, I think we never expected the Joe Biden foreign policy to be good. We've been talking about all the ways that he's been completely lacking on that. I think one thing that I'm kind of coming around to this week, because I think, Jordan, you can say that I've been pretty, I've been, I think, pretty fair covered, trying to cover the, the Biden administration, their domestic program so far um, in terms of the, um, the scale of ambition, the sort of willingness to reject the sort of austerity framework. I've been really trying to give them an opportunity to show that they actually have like learned the lessons 
of the Obama administration. For a little while, it kind of seemed like maybe they were or they had learned these lessons and that they were, even though, you know, it's still the it's still America, it's still the evil empire. They're still carrying on the the sort of bipartisan uh, tradition of, of violent imperialism and, and, and subjugation of the global south. That was kind of never in question. But it did seem originally like at first that they were kind of willing to be a little bit bolder when it comes to the like, domestic uh, policies that they're proposing. And now it's, you know, it's 100 days into this thing. They've passed this one COVID relief bill. And it seems, I don't know if there's really anything else on the horizon. We've talked about things that they've been planning to do on the show, like the PRO Act. I've, you know, some of the rhetoric that's been coming out has been nice in terms of the things that they're saying that they want to do. Mm-hmm. But so far, it's looking like they're allowing one guy in their party and Joe Manchin to just basically veto the whole agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not looking like they're doing anything meaningfully to push back on that whatsoever or to do things like uh, reform the filibuster or even like examine that. And if they don't do that, that pretty much means that there's no chance of any of this legislation that they proposed um, passing in any way. And it really does seem like that that big spending package, that big COVID relief bill that they passed in initially is quite possibly going to be like the only piece of major legislation they're going to have to run on. Uh, which is not going to go well, I don't think, for the for for anybody. Terms, yeah, um, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. I'm I'm nervous about I'm nervous about midterms. Um, that's I mean we're looking they're going into recess soon summer recess soon. You're going to see a lot of like you know not gonna, they're not going to be in session as much the next couple months. Maybe we'll see some stuff uh, in the fall. I think they're going to take one more crack at trying to get $15 an hour minimum wage through something, I think maybe through reconciliation again in the fall. I mean, you're very limited on how many times you could try reconciliation for these types of things. We'll see. Uh, I, I'm also very curious to see appropriations, how they handle the military budget, um, whether there will be cuts. I mean, they're probably not going to pass a budget just because of partisan gridlock, but like what <laughs> continued resolution or appropriations process, um, what, if there's any meaningful cuts or, or gains or, or whatever uh, on the military budget, that's that's very alarming that, that Biden wanted to increase it. So I don't know. I don't know how you're going to run on that. I think just honestly, it's going to be we got the vaccines out. It's yeah. it's Trump was a disaster under COVID, which he was absolutely. Um, but like any like a fucking monkey in a suit would have been better than Trump. So I think they're just going to try to run on America's back. We're, you know, we're continuing this process. We're building back better, whatnot. Uh, you've got your vaccine. Everyone's healthy. Life is re- normal again. I think it, I think voters might just kind of see that and be like, okay, sure, whatever. At least he's not Trump. Um, but the problem is, as we saw under the Obama administration, that if that's this, if that's the thought process for several years, that leads to a major correction in the body politic that leads to somebody like Trump. And dude, it's going to be like a fucking DeSantis or some unhinged lunatic on the right who wants to make things much, much worse. Or Trump but, himself. <laughs> or it could be Trump again. Yeah. We He's just still have, very, like, very popular in the, in the we Republican We have movement. to start addressing these these material conditions that people are dealing with. Um, and obviously, we don't want a DeSantis. We don't want a Trump. But like, you have to actually make the case beyond you've got a vaccine, beyond... Okay, you can go to Chili's again. Yeah. And similar to how under Obama with the Democratic Party, they kind of tried to fall back on this excuse. And many liberals buy this, by the way. But it's like, oh, yeah, we wanted to do all these other things. But like Joe Lieberman said, no. So, you know what? Nothing nothing, nothing we can really do about that. 
And if they, if that's their strategy, if like that's their strategy is to be like, well, if we're look at all the bold things we're proposing, we're proposing this big, the pro act and these big, like the package for, for families where all these families would be benefiting so much from this. It's like their willingness to be ambitious in terms of the things that they're proposing seems to have increased. But if there, if there's zero chance of any of this stuff passing, if they're just going to let one guy in their party, just completely veto this, it's not, you know, that's not going to be enough for a lot of people. And also now, correct me if I'm wrong on this, because this this gets into like the really wonky stuff that I don't really understand and I don't really like spend time thinking about. But like the Senate math for the Democratic Party right now does not look really good, does it? Like it's not like the idea that they're going to continue to be able to hold the Senate after the next few election cycles is like incredibly unlikely. So it like, am I wrong about that? Like that's what I'm. I, that's my understanding of it. But again, I'm not really like a wonk. I don't totally get how all this stuff works. Yeah, there's. It's not a favorable system. Uh, what the solution is is kind of up in the air. I mean, if you want to abolish it, try to abolish it altogether. Okay, I don't know how that's going to play out, but people want to propose it. I don't know if that's a viable strategy. I just, <laughs> I just think people are already people in America are already reluctant to accept change. I think that's a pretty big change, and it looks like it's a power grab, um, which in a way it, it is. It just restores balance. To, and actually reflects the will of the, the, the people. Um, so you don't have this tyranny of the minority anymore. Uh, adding <laughs> D.C. and Puerto Rico as a state might help to an extent, uh, but you have to be cautious and acknowledge that Puerto Rico is not a guaranteed Democratic uh, to more senators. So It's not it, even a guarantee that the people of Puerto Rico want to be part of the United States. Also that too. Yeah, we need we need self-determination, um, not just, hey, you're a state now. So that's that's... A approach, not the best approach, but also, um, yeah, like you said, if, it, if the map is not favorable <laughs> for the next two cycles, and it's it's kind of concerning. Um, yeah, so pretty much, I guess that's the point that I was making, is that you basically have this very short period that you can even have a chance of passing this stuff, and it doesn't seem like they have any intention of doing that. Also, by the way, I haven't heard anything about Stephen Breyer retiring. You heard oh, about God. that? I haven't heard any. I haven't heard one whisper about that. Uh, another thing, if they lose it in the midterms, they lose the Senate in the midterms. I don't mm. know what this country is going to look like if if he ends up d- sadly dying um, in a world where Republicans control the Senate because they'll they'll just wait it out. They will wait it out. They'll make it a general election issue, and they'll replace him with a, with a Republican president. So I. I cannot believe we're doing this again on the immediate heels of seeing what happened with Ginsburg and people just complete amnesia. He doesn't need to step down. How dare you suggest? What? (laughs) We're doing this again. Wow. Dude, the Republicans have like sought out young justices to just continue domination for decades to come. How did Democrats not get this? Yeah. It's, so two years from now, we're gonna be we're gonna be hearing like if they even try to replace Breyer, we're gonna burn the whole fucking thing down. <laughs> it's like I remember how this went last time, and I'm not so sure I believe this. Anyway, things like things are going really well in America. Uh, America's back. I think that's the point that everyone thinks should be everyone should be taking away from this. Um, the golden path, as they call it, it's looking good. Looking good for the U.S. of A. <laughs> um, let's bring on uh, Nashua Khan. Um, it was a really great conversation with Nashua. This is a, like we said, this is like tricky subject matter. It's been an emotional week for everyone, like Jordan was saying. But you're really going to appreciate Nashua's perspective on this, and she's going to be joining the show right after this.
And now we are here with Nashua Lena Khan of Habibti Please. Nashua, how's it going? Welcome to the welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on and talking to us. Thanks for having me. I'm I, I love both of you online, so it's great to be doing this. Um, I'm doing okay. It's really beautiful today in Toronto. It was beautiful yesterday at the Nakba Day Rally. Um, the weather we're getting is amazing for more of these rallies until our government does something about what's going on, and we're not going to let up. So I'm doing good. I saw the footage from Toronto. It looked incredible, like a really incredible turnout. Amazing turnout, and yet we are not having media touch it. And the little media that did touch it focused on how there was a counter rally by the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, and that that they only had like ten people, (laughs) but they covered them equally. Well, and didn't didn't they instigate some kind of like altercations too, and then that got spun into like JDL people attacked at at rally kind of kind of stories yes so um my my co-host on my own show habibti please uh ryan is a legal observer actually at protests and as the arrest was happening he was texting me and i had been with him in the earlier half so a lot of uh, people in toronto who are law students or in the law profession do uh legal like for legal observing for social movements and it's really important to have legal observers and you can do that anywhere in north america there's there's trainings for it i highly recommend people do it and um the Ryan witnessed the altercation, quote unquote, and um, so did a few other friends of ours. And um, I, I think it's it's very unfair to say uh, the Palestinian people uh, provoked the JDL when JDL were throwing water bottles at Palestinian people first and the police were just watching and the police actually circled around them to protect them while they did these things. They were um, saying things like Netanyahu Akbar, which like, yeah, you'd want to punch somebody's face when they're saying that. That's <laughs> like to a Muslim person. That's horrible. Like we say Allahu yeah. Akbar about God. And like, so I, I think it was the framing was very unfair and sterilized of, of those elements. <laughs> yeah. And it's a little frustrating too because fuck we're we're really diving right into this stuff. We didn't even ask you about sorry, gaming. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, we blew right wait past that. We skipped our, the, the the most important question. We can come back to it later, but like you're not getting out of here without answering. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> okay, no, okay, Nash. Well, listen, we have to we have to ask you: Are you a gamer? I'm a gamer now because of IGN. <laughs> like gamers rise up. Go. Like. Yeah. Well, did you see they had to take down the post? <laughs> yeah, they took it down. No way! I missed it. <laughs> they took it down, deleted the page, deleted the archive. It's there's no oh there's no God. trace of that remaining. So they just disappeared it like CIA op. That's exactly they, like, right. They black sided yeah. the IGN page that said free <laughs> Palestine. Okay, okay, that's like Paris Hilton's tweet that just disappeared. That was like free Gaza First too. Yeah, Paris Hilton's tweet was gone in two hours. Sami Zayn of WWE as well. Really? He, I mean, oh, Sami Zayn's got like really good politics in general. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, and he's like the only reason I even like vaguely pay attention to wrestling now, just because he's like he's really great. And um, he tweeted several things uh, in support of Palestinians, and in- including a really uh, widely shared reply to Andrew Yang calling him like a dumbass or something. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because Yang's first tweet about it was was very insensitive, mm-hmm. framed it as uh, Israel solely being the victim and showing uh, only showing support uh, with Israel. And Sammy's tweet, well, it was reported uh, this weekend that pro-Israel groups were putting pressure on the WWE to to take action with Sami Zayn, and he ended up deleting his tweets, which is so unfortunate because he is—he really is a, a, a voice of reason in that yeah. otherwise shitty wrestling federation. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's a Montreal guy, Sami Zayn. Is he? Um, 
Yeah. And meanwhile, you have oh, like... He's a Habibi. That's he's right. Habibi. Yeah. yeah, he's a Habibi. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, on... Um, I know on the recent... Talking about WWE, the recent uh, like Undertaker documentary, he's there like in like a Blue Lives Matter shirt and like, uh, you know, he's like, he's wearing all this like American, modern American fascist iconography. Lo and behold, politically, that's fine. It's pl- it's fine in WWE mm-hmm. to express those political views. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much to criticize Andrew Yang for his like really shitty statement about this. Okay. So that was, that was a little bit of a, that was a bit of a little, uh, a side journey there, but Nashua, what I wanted to say was that, um, it's frustrating the way, what you're mentioning about the, the solidarity protests and how that was kind of covered unfairly or kind of like not covered at all. Because one thing that I have noticed around this most recent flare up of, uh, violence and, um, you know, uh, opposition in Israel, Palestine, is that there does seem to be kind of a sea change happening in the media and the way this is covered and what people in the media and people, certain people are willing to say about this. And I guess that was the thing that I was wondering is like whether this kind of shift is going to continue or whether there's going to be a kind of a backlash to that. And kind of from what we're, we're describing here, it seems like that backlash has kind of already started. So you wonder if this if this is like going to lead to any lasting changes in the way people talk about this or if uh, if people are going to get the message. I I personally like I've been talking to a lot of my Palestinian friends and and they they're feeling a lot of joy in their parents and seeing more people recognize this beyond the normal folks who always recognize this like the last uh, the last time this happened and this well they've always been a violent it's always been a violent occupation but in 2014 the conversation was very different in media and mainstream media especially and you would not see a Palestinian even like get two minutes of airtime and now we're seeing like a few outlets like msnbc will have like their typical like zionist spin doctor but then they're they're having like a mohammed al-kurd who's actually like a resident of sheikh jarrah do i think this will change things i'm not sure because because now we're seeing the retractions happen somebody else um i'm forgetting who else retracted somebody else retracted recently and it's it's i think they've got their media machine working as well um i don't know i think I think it's interesting, though, that we're finally seeing people like Nora Arakat on on different media platforms beyond independent media, which is new. Yeah, I mean, it definitely does seem like there's at least more of an effort, like even on these mainstream media um, outlets to talk about to talk about this at all, frankly, but to like have, yeah, Mohammed Al-Kurd and, and have Palestinian voices like on MSNBC and, and CNN is is it's an incredibly low bar, like asking mainstream media to like cover this issue fairly or talk about Palestinian human rights. Uh, so I guess we shouldn't be too impressed that, no, that yeah. like see <laughs> the CNNs and the MSNBCs of the world are managing to clear this low bar. But it is it is encouraging. But at the same time, like you pointed out, I've, I really started noticing this today as well. I think just throughout this week, you you saw this kind of really uh, kind of inspiring sense of like solidarity uh, throughout the media. And, you know, you want to hope that these things is going to lead to some kind of a lasting change in the way people understand uh, this, this uh, quote unquote conflict. But you're, you're right, though, that now there's been a couple days and the spin machine is going and you can see how, you know, that seed of doubt gets planted. And you can see that there's people in the media and people in politics kind of working overtime to try and get things back to the way they were in the status quo, you know, even a couple weeks ago. It's interesting right now to see like where that where they're going to land on that and whether there is going to be a lasting change. Yeah, it's really disheartening. Um, it's It's really frustrating i think the thing that i've been struggling with this week is just feeling powerless in this um yeah because it's just like so to me it's just such like a blatant offense it, it is it is a a nuclear power picking on and bombing a open-air prison that doesn't have any military to defend itself and 
people are acting here like, oh, it's complicated. No, I mean, killing kids is not a complicated thing. It's just bad. It's 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 inherently yeah. it's inherently bad. And what what's really frustrating, and I've I've probably done a poor job controlling my emotions about this, is just seeing the U.S. Uh, State Department and the Biden administration respond with these really mealy mouth messages, v- very flimsily, uh, you know, trying to express support for Palestine uh, and Palestinians, but just oh, it really in, in rhetoric only, uh, but ultimately granting deference to Netanyahu, to Israel, framing this as a self-defense thing when yeah. they've got, you know, they've got missile defense systems. They've got, again, they're a nuclear power. They receive billions in aid from the United States. They receive weapons from the United States. They have a very robust military jackboot presence. And the, the, the injuries, the deaths are completely lopsided. Uh, you, you are basically, you're comparing kids throwing rocks, people throwing rocks to, you know, tanks. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, very upsetting to see the U.S., the U.S. government, State Department, media at all, just treat this like it's a one-to-one perfect balance situation. And they're just, you know, because it's our ally defending Israel and blocking at the U.N., any attempts to hold Israel accountable for its behavior, which is extremely frustrating, sticks out like a sore thumb on the security council. Yeah, and I think um, the, the there were statements that came out of uh, different protests, but also out of uh, Gaza that like it's so blatantly obvious that the Biden administration is just buying time. But buying time is not buying time in a normal way. Buying time is is killing people. And there's there's uh, I forgot which mainstream news outlet today gave. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu a lot of time on air and there was no Palestinian counterperson speaking. So I think the first few days of us seeing Palestinians on a few uh, mainstream news sites might be over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just like you said, Jordan, it's just this constant framing. And this has been going on throughout this whole occupation for literally decades. But it's so much more pronounced now that I think like we're with the rise of like cell phone videos and the ability for people to see like the reality of what's happening there and what the the reality of what life is like for Palestinians. And then to still, despite this, have the United States government have the, have representatives in the media uh, or on social media, wherever, frame this as if Israel is the victim in this situation uh, and not the aggressor. It's becoming so detached from reality, like any observable reality that anyone can understand. It's, you know, it's I, I don't know what you're supposed to do to counter that because it's just it's such a blatant misrepresentation of the reality of what's happening. Yeah. And, and yesterday we saw some news, uh, some journalists start to speak up again because of the like you said, it's just impossible like to if you're a logical, normal thinking human to like see the different acts of destruction, the purposeful bombing of apartment buildings. Like, I don't think it makes sense that you bomb an apartment building that's, um, for context, Gaza uh, is 70% refugees. It's, I believe, the the one of the two most populated uh, places to live in the world. And it's the size of Philadelphia or Philly. Like, it's, it's a size, it's, it doesn't, it's just so many people have been displaced there again and again. And your these apartment buildings, families, multiple families will live in an apartment unit. And that's very common in uh, Gaza and like Lebanon, uh, people who are displaced in Lebanon, uh, like Syrian refugees and Palestinian refugees. It's just very normal. You'll have a two bedroom apartment, but there might be three families in there. So you kill an entire family and an extended family like you, you kill it, you kill a like a family, essentially, like not only one branch of a family tree, you killed multiple branches of a family tree. It's devastating. And um, yesterday, some of the media that had been silent just suddenly started talking about it because, oh, they, they struck a media building and people were like, oh, this is depraved. How could they do that? But they, it's because they're depraved. It's a depraved, 
occupation. Like, I don't know what why there was shock over that. Like, I don't know what you two saw about that. But uh, like people were in shock that they bombed. I think it was Associated Press and Al Jazeera. Because purportedly Hamas was in the building. But think yeah, about the IDF, how- the notoriously trustworthy uh, IDF and Israeli government said that. And that's all the evidence that we need. That's yeah. all the evidence we need. You have like fucking Brian Stetler on CNN just being like, well, what were they supposed to do? It's like, well, maybe not, not, not blow up the building. I don't know. Simple. Yeah. Or you have these, all these, these fucking brain dead takes from these weird right wingers saying like, oh, we were told last summer that just uh, property destruction isn't actually that bad. We shouldn't worry about it. Now they're all freaking out about these buildings being blown up. And yeah, the, the, moral the moral bombing of these buildings where you you evacuate everyone first uh in gaza a place where they can't fucking leave and they now have nowhere to live like it's not moral to destroy someone's home even if they're not in it at that time um you're still creating refugees you're still creating this like uh chaos intentionally and um you still have people even though the media was involved even though the media the media was deliberately targeted and i think we can all know why the media is being targeted uh in this way by the idf um, you still have people defending that, and it's just like what what more needs to happen for for people to understand what the fuck is going on here. Well, also think about how the media has acted uh, or acted uh, under Trump when Trump would like tweet about reporters and say yeah. about enemy of the press, <laughs> yeah. like, "Wow, this is an attack on journalists everywhere," and they all like quickly signed a book deal so they could get books with like, like under fire and like <laughs> courage on the front lines like my days yeah. in the white house press briefing room and like now you like have a have a have a, a nuclear power blowing up media offices in buildings uh, and only on their word is it justified because of an alleged uh, or perceived enemy presence in the building and they're just like okay well i guess there's something you can do <laughs> like wait a minute what happened to this uh these steadfast commitments to media uh, freedom and, and reporting around the world i guess that doesn't matter uh when we're when we're reporting on on israel like yeah and i think reporters and media was much more transparent during the trump administration about how much money went into things like for example like policing because that became something that was cool for msnbc and cnn to cover right but nobody i have not seen um media beyond a Palestinian, if they get a few minutes on MSNBC, mentioning the $3.8 billion of funding that goes uh, from the U.S. uh, to Israel. And that is why Biden and his administration have the power to stop what's going on this weekend right now as we're speaking. Yeah. And I guess that's like, I don't know what I like. I didn't expect Biden to be good on this. I know his, I I knew like starting off that his foreign policy was going to be terrible. I know Blinken has just been an absolute Mm -hmm. disaster so far as secretary of state. So I wasn't expecting it, but just even with the, the, the widespread outrage at what was happening and, and this, the clarity of the situation that everyone was seeing, like we were saying, the, the reality on the ground in the situation that everyone can see, the fact that they're still leaning on this and still like not supporting uh, Palestinian human rights and still, um, you know, d- trotting out the old line about, about how Israel has a right to defend itself from, from rocket attacks. Um, and treating that like that's the, so that's the origin of the crisis. That's where the violence started. You know, when, when the media or when, when politicians start paying attention to this, uh, it's always at that moment is when the, was when the conflict starts is when these rocket attacks happen. Everything that happened prior to that, you know, in the previous few weeks or even in the previous few decades just gets completely left behind. Um, and then you have Biden. Yeah. So Biden just completely laundering this and, and pretty much giving Israel the green light to, um, continue this, uh, this fucking, uh, highly immoral and disgusting, uh, attack on Palestinians. And I, I don't know, I don't know what I expected, but it's, it's, it's still incredibly depressing to see it, uh, see it happen. Yeah. That's the thing during the campaign, I mean, Biden's campaign site had really aggressive language 
about Palestinians, basically saying, like, oh, we're going to condemn the BDS movement. We're going to strongly condemn the BDS movement because it too often veers into anti-Semitism. Or the power, the choices, the Palestinian choices that they made to get yeah, to create the situation. Let's hold the them Palestinians off the hook for their yes. own choices. Which yeah, is like, that's where, it. Where are they supposed to go, man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's 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 truly unbelievable. But this aggressive rhetoric, I think, just signaled a continuation of the same stances, the same policies, the same whatever diplomacy, if you want to call it that, from the Trump administration. There is no, no material difference between what Trump and and Pompeo did to what Biden and Blinken are doing. They even continued to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That's a move that upset Palestinians. There's no need to continue that, but they did anyway. And it's just, it's just to, they're just going to throw up their hands, like, okay, well, we're not changing that. It was bad when Trump did it, but now all of a sudden it's okay. Well, yeah, like same with not to derail this, but like same with like ICE, right? Like it's just it's just everything seems okay when it's Biden because they the the statement that was put out about Israel has the right to defend itself, like these blanket statements without context or acknowledgement, like Rob was saying, um, they they precipitate like not only a cycle of violence, but like it it's just dehumanizing to Palestinian life and to what's been happening there, um, and and we've never heard any administration say Palestinians have the right to defend themselves. Yeah, that's that's kind of the point I've been trying to make like here and elsewhere, which is that that's kind of what's implicit to that statement is that like Palestinians don't have that right. And it's it's just everything we've been saying, like treating Israel like it's the only side in this conflict that has the right to defend itself. It's the side that's the victim. It's the side also with the, you know, the military airplanes and the bombs, the nuclear weapons, the soldiers, the the guns, the tanks. Um, it, it's it's truly unbelievable really that like they continue to present this narrative it's just it's just stunning to see them continually like rewrite reality this way and uh, another thing about biden too is that um like i said i didn't really have high hopes for the biden foreign policy uh but one thing that maybe gave me second thoughts about it or thought that might be some improvement um when you look at obama's diplomatic strategy with regards to israel and again this is an incredibly low bar obama continued funding and supporting israel this entire the entire time that he was a president but he also did push through Israel's like opposition to the Iran deal and like deliberately, you know, went against what their wishes were on that to sign the Iran deal. I know on his way out the door, they abstained on that vote at the UN that allowed the UN to, uh, you know, vote finally on this humanitarian crisis. So, and, you know, Biden was presumably present for some of these decisions. So I thought maybe there was a possibility that there might be some continuity that they might, you know, mildly, mildly criticize Israel or mildly, uh, you know, push back against uh, some of the violence and, and depravity that we're seeing. But it seems like they've gone back completely in the opposite direction. Like Jordan said, it's basically a continuation of the trump and pompeo foreign policy i mean we don't want that to be the case that's you know obviously but it, it's disappointing that this is what it's become i think the only real change is that the biden administration pushed back the afghanistan withdrawal five months the deadline to withdraw yeah. the trump the trump administration negotiated with the taliban was uh may um, oh and okay i didn't know that actually yeah yeah and as it was in the run-up biden administration was like oh i don't know we're not going to be able to withdrawal and anti-war critics and, and scholars thinkers whatever pointed out like we and we talked about on this show i've quoted a few of them the troop movements that we've done in many many decades prior with far less technological capabilities far less uh, <laughs> uh yeah. vehicular ca- capabilities you can we just were, leave <laughs> we were able to move hundreds of thousands of troops much much faster than the biden administration said they could withdraw 3,000 mm. or 3,500. 
troops. And now there are 16,000 or so contractors that it's, it's still up in the air. Uh, but they moved the deadline back. They just bl- just nuked the deal with the Taliban, which led to the Taliban saying, okay, we're going to go resume attacking you since you broke the deal. Uh, and we'll now see what happens over the next several months. But now the estimated withdrawal date deadline is September 11th. We talked about it again on the show. That just sets up this type of victimhood narrative where it's like, okay, mission accomplished. We're done. We're out. This is what this is what caused it, as we remember and never forget 9-11. Now we're finally ending this war. But like you were supposed to do this five months ago. You're supposed to do this Obama's second term. You ran on it in the first term. <laughs> yeah. So he promised you'd be out in 2012. Yeah, and, and I appreciate you two pointing out that the, the date like cements like a type of victimhood because it's really it's really hard for people who are not like us, I think, to like critically be like be to be to understand september 11th beyond like a day of horrific quote-unquote violence for the american people because it, it's intentionally chosen because it's really hard to like talk to a normie type person on that date and be like yeah this date is chosen to make america look like a huge victim actually and like not be able to push back because that's it's it's so intentional and so smart i when i saw that date dropped i was like Man, this is just like so smart on their end because it's going to be really hard for media on that day in in particular to do much, even if they were going to, which I doubt they were. But it's still like, uh, you know, it's still pushing that lie that like that Afghanistan was somehow responsible for the September 11th attacks, which is just we don't even need to get into the fucking <laughs> weeds on that one. Actually, but it's just it's just especially ridiculous. coming from Canada. If you guys stick your nose where it doesn't belong, they'll do it. They'll do it. <laughs> Jordan, I still have an American <laughs> citizenship. OK, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but that's it brings up it's the, bringing national one. I'm actually very excited about it because it's part of my overall plan to start bringing more and more Canadians onto this show until it is until it is it's just so like Canadian. a Canadian focus thing. And, and Jordan's the outsider. The whole insurgent effort was just getting this into, into <laughs> yeah. Canadian. Territory. Exactly. Wow. exactly. It's it, this has been this has led to <laughs> some of the most fucking insane takes that I've ever seen on on Twitter. Though I have, I must say, because I I think as you can see that there's a certain narrative that I think the the pro Zionists in the media have kind of lost control of. Like, and even if the spin machine is in overdrive right now, I think there is a sense that like people have really stopped listening to a lot of the the arguments that we hear time and time again about how it's complicated. The, these arguments that that obfuscate the very clear power imbalance that we can all see and are designed to, oh, you, you want to weigh in on this? Well, do you know the last 3,000 years of history of the region? If you don't, then you can't say anything at all. It's like, well, I you might you don't need to know the 3,000 years of, of uh, history in that region to like know that that you know a military dropping bombs on children is bad and you don't you don't like it especially when your government is like directly funding it there's <laughs> this kind of certain type of sort of liberal pro-zionist who's kind of active on social media that these things start to happen and then the pro-palestinian solidarity movement kind of starts up and you have someone like for instance like unfurling a palestinian flag on a soccer field and people immediately respond just like i'm the victim now i'm the victim in this situation mm-hmm. me a random like music writer in the west uh who is not threatened by this in any way i'm now being victimized <laughs> I, I just feel it's it's incredibly unhinged and it just it does seem like um these kinds of arguments and these appeals to people's uh, sensibilities in this way aren't really landing in the same way that they were uh maybe even a couple years ago yeah i think Honestly, and this is going to just sound very blunt and like maybe it's lazy of me, but like people need to grow up. And I think people have this time around because 
2014, uh, that attack on Gaza was so brutal and violent and bloody and devastating for Palestinians and Palestinian life. And I remember being online during that time. And I also, um, my, my university had uh, two BDS votes, a 2013 and a 2014 vote. And basically the same arguments were made. So basically, uh, us asking for no sabra hummus in our student union store, literally just like, can you just change the hummus brand? Um, which is so funny to me now. Um, <laughs> people did the same thing where they were like, this is hurting me personally. Yeah, this is intact. Yeah. And, and then people at McMaster, and this includes some of my friends who have now, uh, who learned years after and, and did the work to unlearn that kind of thing. They, they were drawn to that, right? Because, because they're like, oh, you're my friend who has these feelings around this, or my Palestinian friend has these feelings around it. And then my, my other friend who happens to be a Zionist, cause Zionists used to kind of be, uh, uh almost like treated as a slur. Do you remember that in 2014? Like Zionists used to get offended oh, in Canada if you called them a Zionist. They weren't oh, yeah. proud of it. I yet. was they... scolded professionally last year for yeah. pointing out someone was a Zionist. It still is. It still is a major thing here. You have to kind of dance around it, despite them calling themselves that as a geopolitical worldview. You know, I used to say early on when I was a kid, I'd say when I was a young senator, I'd say if I were a Jew, I'd be a Zionist. I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. Yeah, I mean, it's describing something very specific, which is yeah. very strange. And which it's interesting, is... too, because I have some people that are Zionists, they they will conflate Judaism and, and Zionism when it suits them and when they need to make these arguments. But then as soon as soon as the, the cycle of violence backs up and you have people come like, you know, rightfully calling out this apartheid government for what it is, then all of a sudden, you know, then then they have to make this kind of distinction. It was kind of startling to me when I had this, again, professional conversation saying I couldn't say that. Because, I mean, I come from a very conservative, religious family and background, and we're not, I don't know if we're the best people to talk about it. I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of the overlap between Zionists, um, Jewish Zionists, and Republican Christian Zionists. Yeah. Who, they just, like, take this cause on themselves and act like it's very near and dear to their hearts. Well, that's, like, kind of all, how I've always understood Zionism. So to like be scolded for pointing out that someone was a Zionist was very, very weird. It was like, it was confusing almost. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that, Jordan, because here it was a big deal. Like it was like an extremely big deal here. And I, I think it still is in some circles where some people are proud of that identity, but then people, uh, some people literally, if you if you call them that, and especially when I was at McMaster, they they would take it as an affront to you calling them. And this includes professors there, actually, who it's weird. The BDS vote was a student union vote. And the, and the, the reason I'm using this as my micro example, but I've... Um, I have friends who tried to make these emotions throughout uh, the U.S. and Canada. Um, so the, the people who work on BDS campaigns are, are pretty interconnected because five years ago there weren't many. Um, and so the, the, the way that um, Zionists are able to, to use like this kind of um, war of words, quote unquote, like the training that they have i guess um there's a clip that was circulating on twitter from that harvard prof if you saw it yeah 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 saw that. and so it's, it's really disturbing and, they, and it's, they tell north american people that that your job is is this kind of propaganda thing right like like it's kind of like hespera but the american north american version right and it's jarring to me that like this happened to you in a workplace jordan because to be honest i've only heard that happen to like arab people where they're told you can't use the word zionist you're basically insulting me in this way so that that means it's far spread because you're a white man and that happened to you 
It and is, it's their political identity. That's what's wild. That video is really disturbing. And and also, I think it was really instructive as well, because sometimes you hear, you know, obviously posting online is not the highest form of political activism, even though I often joke about this, that it is. Um, but, <laughs> but, I mean, just that video proves that it's not nothing and that, like, these these do actually matter and, like, the, they are paying attention to this shit and they do care about what the what the discourse is saying and what the narrative is saying. And another thing about the, that video that I find really disturbing was when she was talking about um, uh, American Jews. And she says she like spits out that mm-hmm. word American Jews like she's almost disgusted. Um, it's really very strange, this this dynamic uh, and, and how they view people like in the broader Jewish diaspora. And it's 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 very weird, especially when we're we're told that this is supposed to be sort of the the home for for all Jewish people where they're all welcomed. And it's like they don't really talk about Jewish people that aren't Israeli like that. Yeah, and I, and I think my friends here who are involved with Independent Jewish Voices and some of my other friends um, online and in real life who are Jewish, um, they they when they speak out against these things, they, and right away in their replies, they, they do get insulted that way by being called North American Jews in that kind of way where it's, it's meant to be an insult, and it's bizarre to me. And as a Moroccan person, um, Moroccan Jewish people had it very bad in Israel. And so bad to a point that there's writing on this and actually um, their quarter next to Alexa was demolished because they're not, they were Mizrahi, they're, they're not white, right? Because Zionism is white supremacy in a lot of ways. And it, it well, it's settler colonialism, right? And so, yeah. and so North African Jewish people um, have faced so much discrimination there. And uh, it's, they're not the only ones. Ethiopian Jewish women were sterilized and that's well-documented. And so it's it's interesting the way that um, a lot of them now have come out and said, not in my name. And it's because the fallacy that this is built on is that it is in their name. So I'm happy to see them push back. But at the same time, that speech from Harvard was that the Harvard professor was just jarring the like mindset. I haven't seen this clip and maybe some of our listeners haven't either. What what happened in it? Um, it's just okay. So she's a Harvard professor, um, Ruth Wisa, um, and she's just basically uh, speaking. I mean, I can I can link the audio in the clip that we're, that we're playing right now. Our job is not to make you look good, American Jews. What do you have to worry about? Your job is to make us look good, and here's how you do it. Every one of us has to serve three years in the army, two years in the army, some of us five years, and then for the rest of our lives. You have got to serve two or three years in the army of words. You've got to learn to fight the political battle, which is even more important at this point than the military battle that we are. We'll fight the military battle. We're not asking you necessarily to come and be lone soldiers, although some of you can. You've got to learn how to fight back on the campuses, how to make the arguments. The ground keeps shifting under us. They keep changing the language. Intersectionality wasn't even a word 10 years ago. Now suddenly it's intersectionality. You've got to stay on top of it. Um, and, and as I was saying, just the the way, she, the way she speaks about American Jews is just really kind of like she says it almost like as a slur. And it's, it's interesting when you think about how people like Western media specifically frames the way uh, they, they say that Palestinians indoctrinate their children from a young age and, and things like this. But it's very revealing to see that I that clip, I don't think there's a better way to describe it other than like indoctrination and like forcing people to to do certain things. And, um, and we see like in I think is also the 2014 siege on Gaza, like the, the children writing messages on the rockets or not the rockets on the missiles that got fired into Gaza. Israeli children doing that and and that's 
disgusting, right? But like the Biden administration reduces it down to children, I don't know, children on both sides, but they're not equally impacted. One side, the children actually sit on on mountains and watch the bombing of the open air prison that is Gaza. And then on the other side, the children are being pulled from rubble dead and alive. Yeah. What was very unnerving was when uh, the IDF announced, what was it, Wednesday or Thursday, they're going to start invasion and escalate attacks on, on Gaza. People were in their replies like, oh, will this be live streamed? <laughs> oh, my God. I, I can't. I really can't think of anything that, that that more perfectly encapsulates just how desensitized people are to the horrors and depravity of war and conflict than wanting to watch a completely lopsided military action uh, live streamed. I, I that is that is horrific. And then now the death toll is 192 Palestinians have been killed which are 58 of whom are children and 34 women. That's what they wanted to watch live stream. That's sickening. Absolutely sickening. I mean, there's broader broader societal factors that, that yeah. feed into that and just the way we understand war as a cultural force, but really, really sickening stuff. Yeah. And it, it's also like, I want to be 100% clear on this also that there are, uh, you know, many people within Israel Jewish people within Israel that are opposed oh, to totally. the occupation mm -hmm. and that are working, you know, working all the time to end the occupation and to express solidarity with Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't want to paint. I don't we shouldn't yeah, yeah. paint everyone in Israel under this brush. Absolutely. Um, it is worth pointing out, though, that there are like, I don't know if you saw that clip from the Empire Files with uh, Abby Martin kind of interviewing oh, God, just sort yeah. of like average, like, average folks. Yeah. Wait, and I missed that's, this. Can you give me and, an example? Oh, my Oh boy! Well, it's just it, this. It, this is when you're seeing the kind of like very casual genocidal attitudes about Arabs and about Palestinians that uh, many citizens of Israel have. And again, it's not every citizen, certainly, but and just yeah, just people saying like, oh yeah, we should we should just carpet bomb them, you know. Oh. Um, just and these are just these are not representatives of the government. They're just kind of like average people walking down the street. Um, this was from 2018 that these interviews took place. Very very casual sort of genocidal and really racist rhetoric about about Arabs and about Palestinians. You got the carpet bomb thing. He said I, I would carpet bomb them. It's the only way you can deal with them. Which yeah, no no <laughs> no. <laughs> but this is like I think you really hit it, hit it on the head. It's a very casual blase attitude to ethnic cleansing. It's part of the larger you know the larger push by Netanyahu is yeah. to further annexation. And another thing I also want to point out as well, while we're mentioning that, the conversation about what's happening like in Israel and, and the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, I think it's really important to focus on it uh, because of the ways that we've subsidized this and we kind of like we give them endless diplomatic cover and, and support as well. But it's also about understanding the violence that our own countries and our own civilizations were founded on. Yeah. Um, you know, this is not just like this exclusive problem that's only ever happened in this one region right now. Um, it's something that, you know, if you're living in a settler colonialist society like Canada, the United States or Australia, this is exactly what our past looked like. We're just seeing it play out in real time. Um, and when you want to understand the ties, like why is why does Canada have such a strong diplomatic relationship with Israel, or why does the United States have such a strong diplomatic relationship with Israel? There's not you don't have to go to some big conspiracy thing or go to that really dark uh, kind of racist place that many people kind of end up getting drawn into. Uh, it's actually quite simple. It's just that we see that we have this affinity for them uh, because they're a fellow settler colonialist society, and they're providing basically a foothold uh, by the the 
colonialist empire that's headed by the United States uh, in that part of the world, and it's like it's a, kind of a part of that that plan of of global domination by you know by these like colonial powers. Um, and that's the that's the framework that we need to understand this. It's not it's not just about saying you know, oh Israel's bad and this is what they're doing is bad, but you know yeah understanding our own complicity in that violence. On that defense, on that diplomatic support in defense of Israel, this was a stat uh, given to me by Omar Badar, um, but uh, or, or last week. But so I, I you know can't take credit for finding it, but the U.S. has used its veto power at the UN and the UN Security Council. I think more times than all other countries on all other issues combined since the 70s, uh, just in vetoing resolutions that would condemn Israel for its uh, actions toward Palestinians. And this is over 40 different vetoes, uh, including one, one recently where the United States was the only country uh, blocking a, a measure uh, or, or attempt at a ceasefire. Just last week. And uh, I appreciate, uh, Rob, your point about settler colonialism. And I think one big thing, too, is that the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the movement that happened at Standing Rock and a lot of the Wet'suwet'en movement in Canada and, and a lot of the resurgence or the big social movements that have happened in the last five years have set the language and the framework, I think, for a lot of people, at least in uh, Canada, to understand this, uh, to understand Palestine in a way that they didn't before. And I think it's it's very easy here to be like doing a land acknowledgement or saying land back, but it takes way more than that. And it takes like pressuring your members of parliament or your politicians. And um, in Canada, we haven't seen what we saw on Friday from uh, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Cori Bush, uh, AOC, where they gave their, their speeches. I, I guess that was an emergency hour in Congress. I don't know what you folks call it there. Was it an emergency? Special, I don't know rules. It was some special <laughs> special session or something like that. But they had like an hour that Pope yeah. got, and then just delegated his time. And we haven't had that yet here. That Jack Harris, uh, he's an MP from Nova Scotia, called for an emergency debate. I believe. Um, I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think Trudeau will let it happen. We'll see. But um, I, I think I think like civil society here just has a better handle on the language. Like we were talking at the very beginning about the Toronto uh, rally in Ottawa had th- more than 3000 people. Apparently that's never happened for Nakba Day. Nakba Day happens every single year. And that has never happened. And last year during the annexation, there were protests throughout Canada. And these numbers are unseen. And a lot of the signs I saw uh, being held up in America and Canada are are looking at they're talking about indigeneity. And so and, and connecting um, the struggle like Black Lives Matter to the Palestinian struggle, which has been a connection made since Ferguson in 2014. So I think that part is changing. Like the popular education around it is, is, is done. It worked and it got taken up. I think it's more like, what does this look like politically when America can just veto all the time? Yeah. And I will say too, the talking about that, like emergency special session or whatever the, whatever it was called. Um, I mean, we can talk about how complicit the Democratic Party is in this. We talked about Joe Biden and how he's completely giving Netanyahu the green light to carry this out. So you don't want to give them too much credit. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like seeing like uh, AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush kind of speak openly and honestly about this, talk about ethno-nationalism in Israel, talk about apartheid and ethnic cleansing and these things. This was like completely fucking unprecedented basically in the American political system. So as much as you can say like, oh, it's just words, what are they doing? The Democratic Party is still complicit. Yes, yes, this is true. But it still still is a clearer sign that there is kind of an ongoing shift happening and that there isn't this like uniform 
just like complete devotion to ensuring that the relationship is never uh, never questioned or, or examined in any way. Uh, so what that is that is a positive step, like you can clearly see. Well, and also the the criticism. Oh, what are they doing? Well, people like to trot this out, and other uh, you know commentators like to trot this out. Oh, what are the what is the squad doing beside like mean tweets? Okay, well. You know, like I just said at the beginning of the show, it's it's very easy to feel powerless in this. You know, there's only so much one person can do, and sadly, there's only so much a handful of progressives in Congress can do. They're completely outnumbered. It's a bipartisan support of Israel on this issue. Uh, so, like you said, this is significant, but also like the thing that they had power and that what they were able to do was, you know, back Bernie, who wouldn't have done this, who wouldn't support this. Um, so I do think it's rich that some people who trot that line out were also su- very loudly supporting Warren during the primary and now <laughs> demand to know what the squad is doing. So it's very funny uh, how things change, but that's what they that's that's what they had power to do. And okay. That's what they did. Yeah, I'm picking up on that subtweet just now. <laughs> <laughs> the analog subtweet. Classic. <laughs> um. Um, but Bernie, Bernie's kind of disappointed people this week, though. I, I, Yeah, they backed Bernie. That's true. But Bernie kind of disappointed people this week with his New York Times op-ed. Well, isn't it because like Bernie, like that he's he's better than pretty much anyone affiliated with the Democratic Party on this. But still, you see, like it's still nowhere near enough. Uh, even Bernie, who's willing to criticize Israel and is re- willing to talk about leveraging aid to Israel to like try to like control their fucking flagrant human rights violations but he's still just like anyone is um will fall back on these kind of lazy tropes of like the right to defend itself no one would ever would ever dare suggest that Israel doesn't have a right to exist or doesn't have a right to defend itself and it's like there are many people that that would dare to suggest that um and I think that's why it was frustrating and, that, and that's the thing that shows the, the absolute huge gulf that needs to be traversed here in the United States um when it's like the absolute best person on this like who's actually going to be willing to criticize the israeli government is still like falling back into these kind of both sides uh hand-wringing uh stuff you know it's 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 you got to be encouraged a little bit but there's so so much farther to go i think only corbin's good on this that sounds like really horrible to me but like (laughs) i i like i think corbin's the only one now and everybody knows i'm a huge bernie bro yeah, of course. But well, I think- and that's—I mean—and that's what you're—you—you—you <laughs> you, you gotta wonder why there is this five-year relentless smear campaign against Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> I wonder—I wonder if those th- maybe those things are connected. You know, who knows? <laughs> They can't kill our man. They can't do it. <laughs> yeah. One, it was amazing, too, because after after everything, uh, talking about Corbin, like the way that he's been demonized, they've tried to like really destroy him as much as possible. Uh, you know, people people in his own party, people in the media in the UK uh, have really tried to make him a toxic political figure. And it was I, I got to say, it was really cool to see him at these protests and still like he refuses to, uh, you know, temper his his criticism. He refuses to uh, back down when it comes to standing up for Palestinian human rights or standing up for other victims of colonialism um, and imperialism. And that's just like, that's why he's the absolute boy. And that's why they absolutely <laughs> had to make sure that, uh, that there was no possible way that he could end up, end up becoming a prime minister of the UK. But I hear labor's doing really well. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the adults, the adults are back in charge now. So now and they're, they're just cleaning up in elections. Yeah, right? I haven't, I haven't checked into the exact like stats, but I'm, I'm sure pretty sure. Great. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're doing really well. Crushing. Yeah. It. <laughs> Absolutely. Everyone loves Starmer. Yeah. Is that his name? That man's Star- like the most Keith. unlikable person. Keith? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. He's so no, unlikable. <laughs> yeah. No. It, it. It just. It was really amazing though to see him. Uh, to see Jez out there, that was really cool. He's the most, he's the biggest major leader I've seen of like a Western country at protests consistently. Well, and just, okay, so I remember, it's a bit of a sidetrack, but I really do remember that during that 2017 
campaign before you know Labour's really surprising and positive result, there was that terrorist attack in the UK, like pretty much during the campaign, um, at a at I believe a Ariana Grande concert. Yeah, and pretty much just like judging from the previous you know five ten years of of following politics, it was easy to assume at that point, oh Corbyn's going to get absolutely demolished. Now they're going to crack down on all the, the you know we're going to vote for the strong Tories. We're going to do that. And at that time, seeing Corbyn come out and still, even like after this heinous attack um, that left a lot of like dead kids in the UK, Mm -hmm. that was really, really horrible to still refuse to kind of stop pointing out the connection between, uh, you know, foreign interventions and the fact that the UK has like created this kind of like uh, chaotic global uh, geopolitical reality that leads to this kind of backlash uh, was really amazing. It was like, it was really incredible to see that. And the fact that when he did do that, lo and behold, his, his poll numbers didn't, you know, he didn't get destroyed and they didn't turn against him, but people actually supported him more. And that, that was such an inspiring thing to see someone like an actual political leader taking this kind of principled stance on anti-imperialism, even when like all the pressure and all the, the realities of the news cycle was was going against that. Pretty much everyone else at that point would have would have probably um, tempered their criticism uh, and he just refuses to do it. And that's why he's the guy. On that note, too, I just wanted to want to point out because you know we're linking the the, the struggle between uh, the struggle of Palestinians for for liberation in Israel Palestine with the struggle of indigenous peoples here in in mm-hmm. Canada and the United States, um, or the struggles of you know people of color against uh, against police violence. This that dynamic that I'm talking about, where you know we're the side with the the guns and the army tanks and the the planes and the bombs and the soldiers. You have this very very clear power imbalance. And then, you know, the minute one side tries to defend themselves from this, like this, from being pushed to the absolute brink by these like very powerful colonial um, forces, then they get framed as like the thugs, the terrorists. And you see it also in uh, in foreign policy, like you see this in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and places where the U.S. or the Canadian military show up. Uh, they go into these countries with, with bombs and guns and, and destroy people's lives, kill millions of people. But then the moment... One person picks up, you know, a grenade or a rifle or even a fucking rock. That's when we're the victims. We're the victims now and of terrorism and you're the terrorist. And that's used to justify even further violence. And like it's used to crack down even further on, on liberties and, and to justify even more intervention. And you see this cycle play out all over. You see it play out in Israel, Palestine. You see it play out in Afghanistan, Iraq, in inner city communities, uh, in indigenous communities. Uh, it's like a it's a it's a feature of colonialism and not a bug. Uh, and again, that's one of the reasons that I find it very instructive to cover what's going on in Israel Palestine because you see that you see that power dynamic at play all over the place once you start to notice it yeah and it's it's interesting to see uh people that Canada I don't know about America yet Jordan but I've heard it's not fully there yet but in Canada what's something that's very popular now are land acknowledgments and land acknowledgments started in academia actually and they're meant to be meaningful and they're very meaningful when people situate themselves within their own land acknowledgment so I have Palestinian friends who do them and I do them by situating myself and my identity and how I, I came to Canada as a settler and I do believe people of color um, can be settlers some are not some are refugees or were forced here or brought here but my, in my family's case, uh, I would say I fall into the category of I am a settler. And so making those connections and like making sure that like a land acknowledgement, it's, it's never enough. And it's never enough when it's not accompanied by other forms of solidarity. Like without that, I have a Palestinian friend who says that land acknowledgements actually sound like victory laps. When you don't say anything else, they sound like you're bragging almost. Like, hey, like, and in BC, there, in British Columbia, there's like this very popular way of doing land acknowledgements now, but saying, um, 
like especially for white people saying I'm a guest on stolen land, but you're not a guest. You're not leaving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your your grandparents or your great great grandparents came here, and so I think uh, you're right, Rob, about these connections and how they're not isolated events. But um, I think the biggest thing is like going beyond the holding a sign at a protest too. I think protest Palestinian civil society is asking people to do that, but the big one is like a BDS right now, right? But how do you how do you do BDS when you're when we live in Canada or America? with two governments that are trying to criminalize BDS, I think getting educated on that as well um, and, and joining movements like that and, and being vocal about things. Yeah. And that's the that's the catch-22 that Palestinians are faced with every day, which is that you there's no way to resist. There's no proper way to resist. And, and you know, people of color in the United States are faced with the same thing. You can't resist using violence because then you're framed as a terrorist or you're framed as a thug. You actually can't resist nonviolently either. You can't resist through this campaign of boycotts and, and divestments and sanctions. You can't pressure the government to make these kinds of changes. You can't even protest. You can't even go to a protest, uh, which is then also framed as being somehow violent or somehow destructive. There's just no way to, to win. Um, and that's like, that's the, the weird kind of Kafkaesque nightmare that I think these like marginal communities whether from from Palestine to uh, to Ferguson are forced to confront and it's just like it's it becomes this impossible labyrinth uh, where there's no right there's really no recourse to push back against the constant violence the constant dehumanization except to just like accept it just to give up and accept it that's pretty much the only recourse people are left with uh, because you know obviously uh, violently uh, defending yourself is off the table. Uh, nonviolently defending yourself with protests or with these divestment campaigns unacceptable. The only thing that's acceptable in the eyes of these colonialist powers uh, is just to just take it and just to roll over and take it. And that's and when people don't accept that, they're framed as as again thugs, terrorists, uh, and they're framed again as being the aggressors in these situations and not the victims. Yeah, I mean, look at how the U.S. has treated EBS, supporting a consumer boycott, individual people supporting boycotts, which is you know. A pretty basic First Amendment, uh, pr- protected by the First Amendment activity, and you've got bipartisan support for bans on this as a protest tactic among regular people in the United States. Um, this isn't about you know protecting uh, Israel's national security or, or or Jewish people. This is about quashing a, a movement, and that's that's very very disappointing. Um, and a lot of people think, oh well, you know, the Democrats run on protecting human rights. Yeah, sure, okay. People will say anything to get elected. Uh, it's just very disappointing that we don't have a, a national party here that actually lives up to that, whether it's support of the Saudis, whether it's support of Israel, whether it's attacks uh, on multiple countries throughout the Middle East, whether it's now we're seeing escalated aggression toward China. These aren't actually about human rights. This is just further militarization and, for, and continuation of the forever wars. I was just pointing out, you know, like what you were mentioning um, it just in case anyone thinks Jordan's exaggerating, there's literally a law passed in Arizona. I'm just looking at, it, at an article about it right now. It was challenged by the ACLU in, in 2017. And I'm not sure what the result was, but they literally passed a law for state contractors. You have to like pledge not to ever boycott in Israel in order to like get a get a job as a state contractor. Do people like, realize it's like literally like not buying certain brands of hummus? Like, it's not that deep. Like, like I, it's it's such a personal, peaceful decision. Just don't buy a soda stream. Yeah, don't buy soda stream. Don't buy Sabra hummus. Yeah, and it's and, and again, the, also it's this thing where it's like, oh well, it's so complicated. But like, it's really not that complicated. We're talking about 
illegal settlements. Like, but under any international law, these settlements that have been built over the last couple of decades are illegal. Their very existence is this constant flagrant violation of human rights law. And that's the only recourse people have is to say, like, well, let's not engage economically with these illegal settlements, which are like contributing to this apartheid situation. Um, and for some reason, even that is somehow like over the line or, or, or some kind of attack on people. And I also, and before we sign off too, that's another thing that I wanted to mention, talking about these illegal settlements, that is basically the reason why, as much as we still hear about a two-state solution from people like Biden or even from people like Bernie Sanders, who's, who's still talking about a two-state solution, um, the, two, the idea of a two-state solution has been completely off the table for literally decades now. Like, it's not going to happen. No one in the Israeli government or that's part of this kind of uh, uh, project uh, has any interest in making it happen? Like they're they're very deliberately creating these settlements in an, in an effort to ensure that that never does happen and that Palestinians aren't given a state. So at at some point, someone is going to have to move on from this idea that there, there's still a possibility of a two state solution. Um, and that's like we were saying, people were disappointed with Bernie. It would be nice if he could maybe take charge on that and admit the like reality that everyone on the ground there and you know many people around the world realize and understand, which is that there's never going to be a two-state solution. It's not going to happen. It's not possible. So it's time to start thinking about solutions to this like ongoing crisis that are actually grounded in reality, you know, because as long as we're still, as long as that is the thing that our politicians are saying in an effort to kind of signal that they, oh, I stand for good things and I'm against bad things, as long as kind of they're allowed to kind of get away with that, that's going to continue to perpetuate. The status quo is just going to continue continue to perpetuate. Um, eventually, people are going to have to start approaching the situation based on the reality of what's actually happening and not this like fantasy version that's, that still exists in people's minds for some reason, where the, we're going to create these two ethno states and then magic everything's going to be fine after that um it's just not going to happen yeah and i think people don't also realize and this is kind of related like the big one that i think is an easy one to tell people like you need to be realistic about the situation on the ground is people don't realize like like palestinians are subjected to a different road system for example just one example and so like how are you gonna if we're being realistic about what's gonna happen there based on what people are saying on the ground and the fact that there's there's settlements everywhere now right um the way that it's happened and the united nations i think recognized that some of those settlements should have not been built they're built and it, it's really complicated to talk about so I, I think i wouldn't do it justice right now talking about it but the there's a separate road system and that alone kind of messes up things geographically even people don't even realize that the two road system is is already like an attempt to not only create a separate state for Palestinians, it's not a separate state, it's just a separate way of life, like a life that exhausts them. It takes them four hours to get somewhere that takes um, people who are allowed to be on the quote unquote Israeli road system takes them 30 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes. And so you're you're just exhausting life. Gasoline costs so much there. It's just an intentional exhausting of life until until Palestinians leave. They leave to Jordan and they leave to Lebanon and they leave whether they're made refugees and they lose their housing or they just can't sustain life at all. And then they'll just live in extreme poverty in these camps in other countries too. But the point is to get them to leave and to create a state of living that's so awful that gets them to leave. So it, it is disingenuous to keep saying the two state thing because they already do use different roads in a way. They already live in a different way and exist in a different way. But Life is just so brutal, and they're also never just going to get their own state, because why would a global nuclear power give people, like, autonomy in their own land? They want all of it. Well, um, 
as usual, Nashua, it's great to get your perspective on this stuff. It's it's frustrating because I know you really love um, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, you're a huge fan, <laughs> and I had wanted to talk about Elizabeth Warren. She had that stuff about her book that can Some segments from her her book were uh, leaked last week. She's been um, bad on this issue as well lately. I wanted to get a chance for you to weigh in on that because I know you were going to mount a really stirring defense for Warren because I know you're a big Warren bro. Go off queen. I yeah. love her. Love girl boss. <laughs> I love Warren. Uh, they yeah. hate to see a girl boss winning. Um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> That's why they, they, you, you see what they're doing to Liz Cheney. You see oh, what yeah. they're doing. Yeah. They're intimidated by strong women. <laughs> no, yeah, the, the curtsy it. one. What's the name of the curtsy one? Kristen? Kristen Sinema. Yeah. Yes. Another girl boss winning. Mm-hmm. She slays. $15 minimum wage. No, my big my big thing with Warren, the last thing I will rant about that, that I can connect to this is she's one of the people who's so complicit about being bad on indigenous issues. And we see it in academia all the time. She was an academic and, and it's all connected to Palestine as well and how Pal uh, Palestinians are being ignored right now by academics who always use them in the abstract when they talk about decolonialism, decolonize this, decolonize that in the academy. And as somebody who went to grad school and is contemplating finishing it um <laughs> i i I'm, I'm working now for a year and then i took off but um i it's frustrating to see people like elizabeth warren who built an entire academic career being a a hire a quote-unquote um uh, diversity hire or whatnot um and and white women benefit the most from affirmative action that's been tracked there's articles on this uh, academic and non-academic uh, graylet on this and and she went in as an, an indigenous uh, scholar quote unquote but she was not indigenous and that's clear because indigenous people when they're in the academy actually fight for communities. They fight for profs to have academic freedom. University of Toronto's, uh, the New Yorker just did a huge piece on how the University of Toronto did not hire a Jewish woman who was a researcher because she wrote about uh, Palestine and her research was about Palestine. And that's how much academia is just like a chilling effect if you talk about these things. And Warren being a LARPing being indigenous for so long in the academy, she never mentored indigenous students, she never wrote on it, and she doesn't have good takes on connecting internationalist indigenous struggles. Um, so yeah, I, I, I hate her. I don't like her. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like her. She's not helping any movements. Yeah. Well, you, well, you were a victim, you were famously a victim of cancel culture when you... <laughs> You you had a vile a vile personal um, targeted harassment campaign at someone for saying lol at a yeah. at a Warren supporter. Yeah, it made it really upset. Jordan, them. you don't know about this, Jordan. No, what happened, Jordan? I just kind of live in a bubble. <laughs> Jordan, I feel like you know this. I don't. Um, Maybe I'll, it was that. Okay, so it was that it was that post that was like it's called organizing everywhere, sweetie, uh, because someone had like a Warren sticker in her car or something. Oh, it was some absurd, wait, to the key some chain. absurd the post. Key yeah, yeah, the keychain. Key Subaru keychain. Elect women. And then Nashua just said "lol," um, and that led to like a solid like week of like unhinged meltdowns and harassment that ended up like uh, I believe you got. I got suspended You're, for a bit suspended and then I just Twitter, like left yeah. it then I just left it deactivated for a while because they were like contacting my job. They're crazy. They're like <laughs> Yeah, they contacted my job and I was working out of college. Um speaking of like how the impact some people have when they speak out about certain issues and they were like literally contacting my job being like is this your employee and yeah, I just I didn't need that. I didn't need more of HR being <laughs> like what what is this? 
Um, it's kind of like her campaign was based on a foundation of hate sometimes when yeah. you <laughs> yeah. hear this kind of stuff. And they're so like organized in that weird like uh, professional managerial class way where they're not going to like just dunk on you on Twitter the way like Bernie bros did, quote unquote, even though they didn't. Like I was a Bernie bro, whatever. Um, uh, they They will like contact your employer. They will literally speak to the manager. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've lost track of the amount of times that's happened. <laughs> like they start tagging your your bosses? Oh no, they directly. Yeah. <laughs> like me, that was my situation. Yeah. That was my situation. It's well, luckily I don't have a boss cuz I'm a <laughs> podcaster. So <laughs> jokes on YouTube for having actual careers like you can have repercussions for things like that. Yeah. When they call, when someone gets mad at my boss, they call Jordan, and he's just like, "Who's this? Why are you talking to me?" <laughs> uh, don't worry, I've taken care of the problem. <laughs> uh, fire Rob. Um, Nashua, thanks for so much for coming on the show and, and talking to us about this stuff. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you. Um, before we sign off, do you want us to let everyone know uh, where they can find your your work and your podcast and and the stuff you do? Yeah, so people can find me. Um, I have a podcast called Hip Fifty Please. Uh, you can find it on Twitter and on Substack. Uh, it is H A B I B T I B L E A S E. The B is there instead of a P because Arabs do not say the letter P. <laughs> um, so it's it, it, sometimes it confuses people. They look up the wrong one, and you can find my personal account at. Nashua K N A S H W A K A Y. Um, and I would really appreciate if people listening to this episode follow Palestinian Youth Movement. I am a big fan of their work. And I think if you want to do more than just uh, feel like helpless and posting, uh, follow Palestinian Youth Movement. They have chapters throughout North America and they have uh, folks on the ground in Palestine as well. And they're doing amazing work. They are PAL Youth Movement. So P A L. Y-O-U-T-H-M-V-M-T um, on Twitter. And uh, if you're going to put your money somewhere, that's one of the places I'd put your money right now if you have that disposable income. Cool. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. Thanks again, Nashville. We'll talk to you soon. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. Please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot. But please, again, don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban. So please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye. Goodbye.